does 72 months, that's six years, no interest financing? Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, that's who. Just order by May 31st. Set your free consultation today at PellaWI.com slash radio or 855-PELLA-WI. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Memorial Day weekend is, of course, coming up at the end of this week. Memorial Day is a week from today. I, I do want to highlight something that's been going is going to be going on in Waukesha, and I, I have some like limited involvement with it, but I want to tell you all about it. Last year, um, the city of Waukesha had made arrangements to bring the moving wall to Waukesha. The moving wall is a half-size replica of the Washington, D.C. Vietnam Veterans Memorial. If you have ever been to Washington, D.C. and had an opportunity to see the wall, you know that it is just a breathtaking experience. If you stand and look at the, the Lincoln Memorial and you turn right and you walk down this little path, you, you see you see the Vietnam Veterans Wall. I will tell you, I have been there countless times and there is not, there hasn't been an opportunity that I've had to visit the Vietnam Veterans Wall that I have not been moved by the experience. Well, Waukesha is, the city of Waukesha is bringing, again, the moving wall, the half-size replica to the uh, to, to Waukesha. The opening ceremony, and I'm going to be the master of ceremonies for this, the opening ceremony is scheduled for this Thursday, May 27th, at 6 o'clock p.m. During the ceremony, the names of uh, brothers lost from the city of Waukesha will be read aloud. Family members of the Waukesha servicemen will be recognized if they so choose. Um, and so th- this is going to be an event. It's Frame Park in downtown Waukesha. The ceremony is going to be held in the amphitheater at Frame Park. Um, there is limited seating. It's, of course, free and open to the public. The wall is going to be displayed, I think, starting in the middle of the day on Thursday, running through Memorial Day weekend. But the opening ceremony is this Thursday, May 27th at 6 p.m. at the Frame Park Amphitheater in the city of Waukesha. The moving wall will be there. If you have not had an opportunity to see either the moving wall or the actual Vietnam Veterans um, Memorial, do, do yourself a favor and make some time to come out and do that. And again, the opening ceremony, I'll be out there. It is this Thursday at 6 o'clock. I'll be telling you a little bit more about it as the um, week progresses but um that was supposed to be here last year got put off because of the pandemic and i'm glad to see that the city of waukesha didn't didn't bail on the plans and just made arrangements to delay it um it is a very very moving experience no pun intended all right story over the weekend 35 year old man was shot and wounded on milwaukee's lower east side on saturday milwaukee police say the circumstances leading up to the shooting suggest the victim may have interrupted a vehicle break-in around 4 30 p.m police are seeking an unknown suspect don't know any more about that but what happens and we talked about this last week the amount of car thefts in milwaukee just absolutely through the roof in this particular case it sounds like somebody saw someone breaking into probably their car they confronted them they got shot which demonstrates once again how dangerous this is. Unfortunately, you have prosecutors, you have judges, you have certain members of the community 
who seem to think of car theft as a victimless kind of crime. And all right, it's it's an inconvenience, but we don't need to punish punish the perpetrators and things like that. And and this is the type of stuff that happens. And again, I think you know once the details emerge, my guess is it's going to be and somebody that sees somebody busting into their car four thirty on a Saturday afternoon try to intervene and they get shot. Which brings me to the point where I want to start the program today. There's two stories that uh, that have been in the news over the course of the last couple of days, and I believe they are interrelated. Journal Sentinel has a story. The headline is, the Milwaukee area has the sixth most inequitable housing market in the nation. A new study found that homes in predominantly white neighborhoods in the Milwaukee area are worth a staggering 382% more than homes in predominantly black neighborhoods, making the Milwaukee metropolitan area the sixth most inequitable region for real estate in the U.S. Um, the study further confirms that segregation in the Milwaukee area is among the worst in the nation. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, homes in area zip codes where the majority of residents are black are worth an average of like $97,000 compared to an average of 470000 for homes in zip codes where there's not a black majority of residents. So the, the story goes on again to talk about the financial inequity. But it doesn't, it doesn't really address the question of, of why might that be now i understand the implicit uh, the implicit suggestion is okay well th- this is because it's because there's segregation and because there there's racial bias and racism and things like that and i'm sure there is an element to it but there is another story in the news which relates to this and this goes back to what we were talking about right before the show started the final jeopardy answer i misspoke i said 180 percent the final jeopardy answer is 100 percent 100 percent what is the question the question is how much are non-fatal shootings in milwaukee up from the same time period last year? And the answer would be 100%. Today's TMJ4 did a real interesting look, and they looked at, let's look at non-fatal shootings. Let's forget homicides. We all know that homicides are absolutely through the roof. We, We all know that. But let's look Let's look at the non-fatal shootings. And if you're a regular listener of this program, you know I've always maintained that any time there's a shooting, it is but for the grace of God and a tribute to emergency medicine that a shooting doesn't turn into a fatality. That That's just the, the rules. So that's why I've always felt that homicides are in many cases a, a bad indicator of the true level of violence going on in a community. Because like I say, you know, anytime you're shot, you, you could die. It's just a matter of luck in many cases or bad aim whether you survive or not. So anyhow, today's TMJ4 takes a look at the number of non-fatal shootings that occurred in Milwaukee, and they go from January 1st of 2020 to May 19th of 2020, and then they compare it with this year. So we're looking at apples to apples. This time last year, 145 non-fatal shootings, 145 non-fatal shootings, This year, 289. Essentially, it is double. It's up 100% 
over the course of the last year. And by the way, it's not like last year was not a record sort of year for violence. It's not like last year was some aberration where there were no shootings. No, to the contrary, you know, the homicide numbers, for example, were just through the roof. So you have essentially twice as many non-fatal shootings in the city of Milwaukee this year as you did last year. You have the car thefts, which are just completely and totally, you know, off the rails. You have the homicide numbers, which are up. And then you have the story that talks about how housing values in certain zip codes in this city are are really, really down compared to others. And I guess my response is, of, of course. And, and if you're looking for at least one explanation for it, I think it all comes back to crime. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you have a community, an urban area, a metropolitan area where people can't leave their cars on the street because they're going to be stolen, where people are afraid to walk down the street for fear that they are going to be robbed, a community where people are afraid to be outside or on their porches or coming out of bars, etc., because they're afraid that they are going to be shot, maybe intentionally or maybe just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Of course, that is the type of those are the type of numbers that reflect where people want to live and how much they are willing to pay to buy into a particular community. Does anybody want to live? And I don't care again that this isn't a matter of race. Does anybody want to live in neighborhoods that are plagued with car thefts and shootings and homicides and all the other attendant violence? Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This isn't a chicken and egg thing. It seems to me that when When it comes to livability, one of the very first decisions that people make in deciding where to live is, is the neighborhood safe? And if the neighborhood's not safe, well, then they're not willing to live there or they're certainly not willing to pay as much money. Now, there's other factors as well and schools and convenience, and I get all that. But I've always believed that crime is a number one deciding factor in determining where people want to live. And until you get a handle on all these types of crimes, including the non-fatal shootings, you're never going to see a a balancing out of of prices. You're never going to see people wanting to pay more to live in a particular area until they believe they are safe. And we don't have that now. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the accurate mortgage talk and text line. Last year was a really bad year for crime. If you just look at the numbers, and Milwaukee's not unique; it's hitting other urban areas as well. But this year in Milwaukee, it's it's almost difficult to imagine it's worse. But it is a lot worse. Channel Four reporting that the number of non-fatal shootings is up one hundred percent year to year. Last week we talked about how car thefts twenty five cars a day are stolen on the mean streets of the city of Milwaukee and no car theft thief gets gets punished no they, they just they just don't unless you shoot somebody 
you know, while you're stealing the car, the chances of you being held accountable for stealing multiple cars is non-existent. Then there's this story about how in certain zip codes in Milwaukee, there, there's a huge you know, price disparity on homes. And, and my point is, I, I'm not surprised because my guess is if you look at some of those zip codes where there's the disparity in home prices, you're also going to find a direct in correlation with the the degree of crime and until you get a handle on crime in a city your people aren't going to want to live in those communities do they let's start with uh, mike and mosquito mike you're on wtmj afternoon jeff hi mike this is like the unperfect storm going on now crime is out of control they're still talking about defunding police and taking away police resources Nobody wants to live in an inner city. I could imagine how many of those residences are just low-income housing or where they get government assistance to pay their rent. Meanwhile, car thefts, out of control in Milwaukee. you got vigilantes like East locating citizens' cars on his own. When is it going to end? The district attorney's office is so backed up, not charging cases because they just don't have the time. When are we hitting rock bottom? I think we're well, hitting it right now. Well, no, thanks to call Mike. And see, and, and see, and that's that. That's the problem. I mean, there's, there's, look, people make choices. And I think what happens is there, there's certain people who end up, you know, because of, of whatever financial wherewithal or whatever, you're you're trapped in some of these various neighborhoods because you don't have the economic resources to get out. Well, okay, so then the question is, how can we better the neighborhood? And there's lots and lots of good people who live all throughout urban areas, whether it's Milwaukee or whatever, but they end up getting held prisoner in in their their homes. And that's part of the problem. I mean, I remember you know, decades ago when I was chasing drug dealers, you, you, you'd have what would happen when a, when a drug house, for example, would move in on a block. And you'd always hear these stories where I it used to drive me crazy in the, the press where people would say, OK, this is a, a known drug house. And so I'd say, well, okay, if it's a known drug house, why aren't we shutting it down? Because if you want to talk about what impacts on quality of life, live in a block where you've got a quote unquote known drug house. It makes the residents of the block, you know, prisoners. They're, they're afraid to go out because, you know, you're attracting, like, again, the, the people that are patronizing the drug house. You're attracting the potential violence that goes along with it. But, it, but it's, it's that big picture that, that's out there about how you, you've got to clear Clean up the streets. And it's not just unique to Milwaukee. I'm not implying that or suggesting that. But if you want to figure out how you can enhance values of property, how you can improve the quality of life, well, there's all sorts of different places to start. I, and I get it. I understand there's the schools and there's, you know, accessibility of jobs and all these things. And those are all very valid issues. And I'm also willing to accept that, you know, Milwaukee is an extremely segregated city and that probably has some impact as well. No argument with that but it starts with crime make the streets safe get the criminals off the street and keep them off the street and unfortunately we're moving in the opposite direction what happens is we we have you know whether it's and i'm not faulting the police on this you want to talk about one of the ongoing frustrations you talk to police officers who go out and they try to enforce the laws and they arrest people and then they find that you know nowadays you've got the courts that because of covid or whatever they, they don't even in many cases impose cash bail it's a revolving door you catch people you send them back out on the street they're committing other crimes again and again and again and they're not held accountable 
all of which contributes to a community that is completely and totally, you know, out of control. Um, Jeff, why even have a common council or elected officials um, when all I hear is crickets from them? Well, well, that's it. Whenever you have these different types of shootings, what is the default position? The default position is, well, we need more gun laws. And, and I, look, I, I've, I'm not I'm not anti-gun laws. Put in more gun laws. That's okay with me. But as a starting point, why don't we also like enforce the laws that we have? So when you have felons walking around in possession of firearms and they get caught, why don't we send them to prison for a couple years? Huh? Get them off the streets. Maybe it'll help rehabilitate them. But at the very least, maybe it will protect society. And all right, it's the same sort of thing when you catch people who are involved in insurance shootings what why aren't why aren't we sending people to jail and i understand that some people will say well we don't have enough prison space to which my response is let's build more oh you can't do that look i i'm all in favor of efforts to try to stop people from committing crimes and some of these like early these initiatives to like intervene if you see like troubled young people and you want to try to get them on the right path early on i'm all in favor of that i got no problem with it but once you cross that line once you have stolen your fifth car once you've been involved in your third shooting once you've become a felon and you're on probation and you get caught with a gun at some point in time by not holding people accountable by not getting people off the streets all you are doing is contributing to the decline of a community. You're making it more difficult for people to be out on the streets. And you're essentially saying to folks, hey, if you don't want to raise your kids in a shooting gallery, if you're worried that your car is going to be stolen if you leave it on your in front of your house overnight, well, okay, how do people respond to that? Well, people respond by saying, all right, I, I want to move to a better neighborhood as quickly as I possibly can. And that leads to a deterioration in the property values. And again, I understand it's a complicated issue. I understand that there's a lot of stuff going on, but I always come back to the correlation and I believe the causation between the livability of a community and the amount of crime that's going on. And these crime statistics are just mind-boggling and you don't hear anybody talking about them. You, you, you Maybe you hear people pointing fingers, well, we wish Madison would give us tougher laws or things like that. Um, gee, you've got the district attorney who shows up and says, well, you know, it's really not our problem you know we've got some problems with the juvenile court justices and things like that but but nobody is willing to stand up and say look we've got to start doing something to take these streets back and that starts by getting the criminals off the streets making it a safer place for people to live regardless of their race and once you do that you're going to see areas and neighborhoods become more desirable places to live back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. The Miracle League of Milwaukee is celebrating its 10th anniversary. That means an entire decade of bringing together children of all abilities to play organized baseball. The Miracle League believes everyone deserves the chance to play our national pastime, but they can't do it without the support of the community. That's where you come in. To find out how you can support this great local organization, go to WTMJ.com slash CARES or text the word CARES, C-A-R-E-S, to 855-616-1620. WTMJ CARES, sponsored by Gruber Law Offices. All right, just, just to kind of put a 
bow on the conversation we just had. Here, here's one of the many texts we got. Jeff, there was just a driveway. There, Jeff, there was just a driveway shooting on Brady and Humboldt last night, about a hundred feet from my house. It's the final straw. I can't live in this city anymore. All right. Well, that's when you think about it. That that makes. That makes sense for people who have the option to decide, you know, where where they're going to live. I mean, j- just imagine, imagine this. Imagine if, you know, in your your neighborhood, all of a sudden you say, "Oh my gosh, there was just a shooting," um, you know, within oh ab- about thirty yards away, the house down the road. There, there was just a, a shooting. Now, who wants to live in an area where that happens, especially if it happens on a regular basis? Now, I understand there, there's crime everywhere, and, and you see that by just listening to the TV and radio and things like that. But the reality is, crime is concentrated in certain zip codes, and. As a result of that, I think it artificially depresses the value of property because you sit there and you say, oh, this is the fourth time we've had the cops here and there's the ambulances and the helicopters over our house again. Well, after that happens a couple times, maybe you begin to realize, gee, if I can get out of here, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. And the problem is if you're a property owner, well, you, you got to sell that property and you got to sell it at a market value. And if crime is out of control, well, that depresses the market value, period. But you don't hear politicians talking about that. You don't hear a lot of people in the media that are talking about that as well. And do I understand that the housing patterns in this area are, are complex and there's all sorts of reasons why property values in some parts of the metro area are lower than others? Sure, I, I get it. But let me give you a hint. Start cleaning up crime, and I think you will see that that gap narrow. Just saying. Okay, there is an ongoing battle now because, what, two weeks ago, the CDC comes out and they say, all right, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks. And so a lot of people, myself included, who were following the rules, but were fully vaccinated, and I'm now at a point where I, I do not wear my mask unless the rules say that you absolutely have to. If the rules say you have to, I, I will. I'm not a rule breaker, but as a general rule, I, I don't unless I am forced to do that. All right, so what is happening now is you have a number of businesses which are grappling with how they enforce this rule with their employees because the employees come in and say wait well if the patrons don't have to wear masks why should we have to wear masks so what an increasing number of businesses are doing again i first noticed this at a at a at a restaurant that i i patronize a lot and they made it very clear what their policy was their policy was if their employees come in and can demonstrate can prove that they are in fact fully vaccinated that they can show the card then they get to work without masks. That's the, that's the rule that the employer has. If you can't prove that you have been vaccinated, either because you haven't been vaccinated or because you just choose not to disclose that, there, there's no job consequences. You know, you, you, you don't lose your job, but you have to wear your mask. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is that an unreasonable position for an employer to take? And for the purpose of this conversation, I want to focus on on the employers. Because actually, I think that's a good way to go about things. I think that the employers, again, they don't, 
they, by the way, employers, some people say, well, it's a violation of, of HIPAA rules to do that. No, it's, it's, it's not. HIPAA only applies to a limited number of predominantly healthcare providers. So, you know, your, your employer, again, unless you're in the healthcare field, can ask you whether you've been vaccinated or not. But this doesn't even require that. This simply says, look, here's the deal. You come to work. If you want to work inside, if you want to deal with the public or sit at your desk or whatever inside and you don't want to wear a mask, that's fine. But you do have to prove. Show us that vaccination card. If you choose not to show us the vaccination card, that's your that's your business. But we expect in that case you will wear a mask. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think that is a reasonable middle ground for employers to take. Employers aren't mandating that people get the vaccination because there's lots of people who don't choose to do that, and that's their right. But employers are saying, we're not going to fire you if you don't get vaccinated, but if you want to be on our premises, if you want to work inside, if you want to deal with the public, you're going to have to prove that you have been vaccinated if you don't want to wear a mask. I think that is the way employers should handle it. I think that is a reasonable middle ground. I don't think from an employee perspective that that is unreasonable, and I don't think from an employer perspective it's unreasonable. What do you think? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, the way a lot of employers are, are dealing with the, the CDC guidance right now, which is moving us away from, from masks, is to say, here's the deal. If you are fully vaccinated, you do not have to wear a mask while you are inside. If you aren't fully vaccinated, you, you do. Um, if you choose not to tell us or not to prove to us that you're fully vaccinated, then you got to wear a mask. So those are the different options that are around. Again, a couple of people are sending me notes saying, how this is not a HIPAA violation? Again, HIPAA only apply, applies to certain health care providers. It, it doesn't apply to the vast majority of employers. So uh, unless you're Again, working at one of those industries that are covered by HIPAA, your, your doctor can't release information about your health status. But, you know, it, HIPAA for most people is not going to apply. But regardless, I don't have a problem with this, this whole idea. I think it's very, very, I think it's a fair compromise that, that is out there as far as the employers. Uh, Jeff, I agree. It's a reasonable policy. People need to get overthinking that an employer doesn't have the right to ask them whether or not they're vaccinated. As a retired no- nurse, I had to provide documentation of receiving a flu shot every year, as well as proof of a TB test. Jeff, I think this is wrong. It's no one's business regarding anything about anyone's health, hip or not. Let's see how long that goes when they can't get enough employees. Well, I, I, you, you are trying to balance things out. The, the CDC guide, guidance doesn't say that you can go without masks. Now, you can argue about whether or not that's a valid position or not, but right now we've been following the science for the last year. And just like I have been very, very critical of people who were saying, well, even if you've been fully vaccinated, you shouldn't go around without masks. What you, you shouldn't go around without masks, because to me, that's not following the science. If you're making the decision for whatever reason not to get vaccinated, fine, go with God. That's the decision that you're making. But at least as it stands now, the science says that 
you you should still be wearing a mask when you're inside when you're interacting with with other people now perhaps that will change in in the future hopefully it'll change sooner rather than later but that's what the guidance is right now and again i think that the employers you know have the right to do it now as far as, as people you know quitting i don't buy that that's going to be the case i i don't think that's as a practical matter it to me that is an incentive that's out there for employees to go ahead and get vaccinated when you see a number of your other coworkers who are now walking around without um the masks 8556161620 jeff i think it's perfect to show proof as folks don't want to get the vaccine then they have to wear a mask i'm perfectly comfortable showing my employer my card uh, much respect to you guys that that's i guess that's that's how i feel as well and that's what our guidance now is. If you have a mask, you if you have been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Now, we haven't gone to that next step of saying have to prove it. But if, if that's the next memo saying, OK, we want to see a copy of your vaccination card if you don't want to wear a mask in the building. I have no problem with that at all. Jeff, absolutely don't agree. Employers can push the vaccine. So when something bad happens, then what? Well, Okay, again, the employer isn't saying you have to get vaccinated. The employer is leaving that up to you in a conversation with your physician or or whatever. But the employer is saying, you know, come to work. That's fine. We don't have a problem with it. But if you're going to come to work and you're not going to be vaccinated, well, we expect or you're not willing to prove that you've been vaccinated. We're going to expect you to continue wearing the mask. Jeff, companies have the right to do what they want to do. They have the right to ask for proof of vaccination. I I agree. I don't think that's a problem. Jeff, I would quit my job in a heartbeat. Thank God mine doesn't care. I guess I find that to be interesting because for most employers, and maybe not all, but for most employers, you know, during the, this pandemic, most employers, I think, have had a mask requirement that's in place. So if you wouldn't have quit your job over the course of the last year, if everybody was supposed to wear masks, why would you now quit your job? Because some people are allowed not to wear masks if if they got vaccinated. Again, I don't know. Um, I, to me, I don't see this as being that big an issue. Jeff, my employer does not require us to wear masks if we are fully vaccinated. It's okay if we do. Several of us still wear them at work, but it's not required. I think it's a fair option for employees. Right. And then you make, then you make it, it clear to, uh, again, what's going on to your customers. The place I was talking about, you know, posted a notice. They said, here's the deal. Our employees are going to not be required to wear masks if they can prove that they've been fully vaccinated. So for those of you who are dealing with them, if you see an employee that's not wearing a mask, you can assume that they have, in fact, been fully um, vaccinated. Jeff, this is segregation and shaming of people that will not get vaccinated. It's ridiculous. No, it's not shaming of people who won't get vaccinated at all. The alternative then is to say that everybody's got to still wear masks. That That's what the alternative is. I think for many employer, employers, it'll be that everybody has to wear masks. And I don't buy that either. I, I don't I don't buy that. I think what we need to do is we need to try to do whatever we can to get people out of the mandatory having to wear masks. Now, it again might be at some point in time that the CDC guidance is going to change and we'll get to a point where enough people are vaccinated 
I'm skeptical if we're going to get to ever get to that magic herd immunity, but maybe we will. Once we get to a point where enough people are vaccinated that the CDC guidelines say, okay, nobody needs to wear masks, that, that's great. Then you don't have to go through this, but we're not there yet. All right, we'll take a quick break. Back with much more in just a minute. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so Tony, I I acknowledge that this might be God's way of telling someone that they have too much money, but it's worth every dime. Okay, so here's the deal. We have, do you have a grill? Okay, we have... A big Weber gas grill, you know, it runs on propane and stuff, but three burners and stuff. So I guess there's yeah. bigger ones, but it's it's a decent sized grill, and we grill out a lot. It's the Royal We because my my wife <laughs> does most of the grilling and stuff. But you know, after a while, those grills get get dirty. The burners get dirty, and the grill stuff it, it, it sure, gets dirty yeah. and right. Now, last year, I said to my wife, I said, now I I, I said, why do I there's these, these places that clean these grills. You know, why don't we hire one of these places to come out and do it? And she said, well, that's just a waste of money. I'm not going to waste the money. I'm, I'm going to do it myself. And that's fine. She did it one afternoon while I was at work. And I think she started like at noon. And I come back. I get home at like 4 o'clock and stuff. And the grill is in a million pieces. Oh. And she's covered with grime from head to toe. And I, the grill's all over. And there's buckets of dirty, greasy water and stuff. Oh. And she, I clearly, I've walked into this situation where... She's not happy, <laughs> and, and 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 I I understand, and she's she's like mad at me because I guess I wasn't helping clean the grill because I was at work. But in my defense, I had said there are these places that you can hire right. to go do this, yeah. right? So all right, so this year grill, you know, and and they they come out and they clean the burners and all that type of stuff. You know, it's not just like scraping all the grease and stuff off, but they 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 clean them. So this year, time to clean the grill again. And we have this conversation. My wife says. I don't want to spend the money. Maybe I can do it. And I'm like, don't you remember? I'm, I'm flashing back to this scene all across our deck with all this stuff. And, and I said, don't you remember last? Yeah, but I, it's it's going to be whatever it is. And I said, I, you know, I said, honey, I don't care how much this costs. We we got to do it. So today, the guy shows up like at eight o'clock this morning, and I got to tell you, it. I, I don't know exactly how much it's going to cost because I, I left before this. But he got there at 8. He was still working on this thing at 10 o'clock. It's one of these that they have. It's like a grill service that comes out to your house. And they've got like a steamer. And so they take all okay. the they take the grill apart and they take all the pieces and they put it in the, like the steamer and steam clean it. And he does this acid stuff. That, I mean, the grill looked like a new grill. And I'm looking at this thinking, okay. Maybe this is something that you can do, but every once in a while you get to a point in life where if you can afford to have somebody else come out and do this incredibly messy job that's going to take three or four hours, it's God's way of telling you. I don't think it's God's way of telling you you have too much money. It's God's way of saying, yeah, you don't have to clean this yourself. One way to avoid a pretty bad headache, I'm guessing. It, Just, it, it, it hmm. was. And I, and, you know, and again, this, it's not like we have like one of those Webers where you put the charcoal and stuff in it. No, this is, it's a gas grill. And mm-hmm. so I, I think by doing this, maybe you extend the life of it. But I was, I was, I also, I, I gave the guy a, a tip because I was, this was, it's, it's hard work. I mean, you know, it's. I, I believe it. They get probably pretty coated with all that grease and. Oh, oh yeah. And, and I'm sure, 
I'm sure ours was better than some, but it's still, I said, this really needed it, didn't Because, I mean, look at the guy, and he's, you know, you're taking the whole thing apart, and then you got to put it back together again. But it was, it was, I don't know, again, I don't know how much exactly it cost, but whatever it was, it, it was worth it, because <laughs> there is now harmony in the Wagner household, I think, because... That, yeah, that's priceless. I mean. Well, well <laughs> it, it is, because I just, because you ever, do you ever have that situation where you kind of come home, you walk in, and you know you're in trouble, even though you haven't done anything? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I'm the one, honey, last year that said, let's hire somebody to do this. But um, this year, I, I won out on crisis that Crisis averted. <laughs> A crisis averted. Absolutely. I don't know what it costs. Okay. John Marshall. For people who perhaps aren't familiar with, with John Marshall, he was the fourth Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He served um, as the Chief Justice for 35 years, 1801 to 1835. He was, during that time, one of the most significant, he remains to this day, you know, 200, almost 200 years later, he remains one of the most dominant and significant legal figures in in the history of American jurisprudence. He's, um, He's responsible for... It's probably his most famous opinion is one that came out in 1803. It's called Marbury versus Madison, and it set the precedent for judicial review by the Supreme Court. I mean, it, it really is the foundation of United States, you know, jurisprudence. And, and he served for for 35 years on the Supreme Court. He, he was also involved in a number of other incredibly significant decisions. John Marshall. Well, for years and years and years in Chicago. There was a law school named after former Chief Justice Marshall called John Marshall Law School. Now, a couple years ago, John Marshall Law School merged with the University of Chicago, Illinois, um, and, and, and it became the University of Chicago, Illinois, John Marshall School of Law. That, that's what it was. It has been controversial because a, a number of the usual suspects have been complaining about the name John Marshall being attached to this this law school. And if you ask why, the, the reason is because, again, John Marshall was a, a product of his time. And keep in mind that, that slavery existed in this country, and, and slavery is the United States' original sin. I don't think anybody can argue about that. But um, John Marshall who again um, was you know born in the 1700s served on the Supreme Court till 1835 John Marshall was, was a slave owner newly discovered research said that he was a slave owner and that <clears throat> on occasion he, he apparently you know bought and sold slaves which is I guess consistent with what somebody who would be a slave owner would, would do. So they, they've now discovered this. And for the last couple of years, there's been this controversy saying we can't have a school. It doesn't matter what the guy did. doesn't matter how significant he was. doesn't matter that, that he was generally recognized as a true legal giant. Um, 35 years as the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. But because he was a slave owner, who sold slaves? They discovered discovered some research that at some point in time, apparently, his son ran into fell into debt, and you know he sold slaves to pay off some of his son's debt. That here in 2020, 
2021, we can no longer have a law school that bears his name. And um, let's see, the other day, last Thursday, after a months-long review, the University of Chicago, John Marshall Law School, the trustees decided that effective July 1st, they would remove John Marshall's name from the law school. If from hence, henceforth, it will just be the UI Chicago School of Law. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where, where does the cancel culture stop? Again, this is... We are talking about a man who was the product of his time, who was unquestionably a huge legal giant, and who, who did things that, uh, by by modern standards, if he was a slave owner, by modern standards, we, we would appropriately be appalled by that. But he was a product of his time. Does the fact that the guy owned slaves in 1800, does that mean that we have to remove his name from, you know, in this case, a school of law. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What is the standard? What is the standard that if you did something which by 2021 standards is, we would all agree, unacceptable, does that mean that we have to just simply take your name off buildings and not recognize the accomplishments and all the things that you contributed to, in this case, the development of American jurisprudence? 855-616-1620. And I guess the answer is yes, in 2021, that's what it means. I just don't think that that's appropriate. We discuss in a minute. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're just tuning in, John John Marshall was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835. He is the author of a number of decisions. That I mean, he, he was a lion, an absolute legal lion. He is the author of a number of decisions which set the framework for American jurisprudence o- over the course of the last, you know, almost 200 years. And, and I think everybody would acknowledge that. Well, for years and years, there has been the John Marshall School of Law that his name has now been removed from the school of law because it, it turns out that at some point in his life he, he owned slaves. So we're saying because you own slaves in 1790 or in 1805 or whatever, when we, we did have slavery, and again, it did, slavery is the ultimate sin in, you know, the original sin in, in, in America. But because he was a slave owner, we, we can no longer, we cannot longer have his name on public Buildings eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To which my response is: Is why? I mean, aren't we supposed to judge people by the the standards of the the time? And have we reached a point where we now have to say, oh, because this person did this, we we can't we we can't honor him for his other contributions? Okay, let's start with Bill in Bayside. Bill, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Just one correction for you. First, on uh, Chief Justice Marshall, his uh, title was actually Chief Justice of the United States, but uh, that's just a minor point. But I strongly agree that we should not change the names of institutions or cities, for that matter. Four of our first five presidents were from Virginia, 
Adams being the sole exception, and they were all slaveholders. Are we to change American history and uh, eliminate any honor or recollection or reference to uh, to those presidents because they were slaveholders? No, I don't think so. They were all products of their time. Well, right, and, and I think uh, you know, they, Bill. I think that's the key. They were products of of their time, and certainly not perfect individuals. And they participated in stuff that we would all find to be appalling slavery. But that that was what was in America in the 1700s and the early 1800s. And you're exactly right. Where do you draw the line? I mean, whether it's Washington or Jefferson or Adams, can we no longer recognize those people? And I I guess I would say imperfect as they might have been doesn't change the accomplishments and all they did. And we certainly don't need to remove their names from buildings or change names of law schools because the guy might not have been a perfect person judged by our standards now. Exactly. I totally agree, Jeff. Um, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 855-616-1620. Jeff, at this rate, schools and buildings will be named after uh, the after colors. The blue school, the yellow school, the orange school. Um, oh, wait, you can't say red school because red would be associated but with the... Um, <clears throat> with the government you know and again i I love the fact that you've got this cancel culture that's out there that instead of trying to deal with the real issues that exist in 2021 the, the real issues that exist when we try to confront real racism that's out there instead of trying to confront these we obsess on oh well we've got people that are very unhappy that the school of law is named after one of the longest serving chief justices of the united states so what we have to do is we have to take that name out how does doing that make the life of anybody better and the answer is yeah it doesn't jeff this is beyond tiring let's just delete the entire history of the usa how can we learn from the past and move forward if we can't even look at that history right i don't think there's anything wrong with having the discussion and saying okay look uh john marshall by the way john marshall was not a perfect guy especially by our standards he like so many other People in the country in the 1700s and the early 1800s, he was uh, he was a slave owner, and I think he was a slave owner while he was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. But does that change the fact that he was a legal lion? And my answer to that would be absolutely no. But the cancel culture is out there, and it's claiming more victims. And this is just the latest example. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Well, here's an example of the cancel culture trying to take somebody out, and it, it doesn't quite work. Morgan Wallen, and Morgan Wallen is, is is the young country singer who's also kind of a kind of a jerk. And, and Morgan Wallen had his his career kind of blow up. You will remember a, a while back because it was one of those nights where he and a bunch of his buddies are coming back from a, a night of partying and drinking, and the neighbor has a the, the neighbor he lives in Nashville, and the neighbor has one of those cameras that's out, and it, it catches Wallen as he's kind of stumbling into his house, and he's you know waving at some of the people who's dropping off, and he said take good care of, and he's referring to somebody, and he uses the N word.
inappropriate. Uh, completely and totally inappropriate. But in in the context of it, he he's just being a drunken jerk. It's not like he's it's not like he's singling this out and saying I hate all you know fill in the blank. It's just he he uses the the term. It's a slur. He should not do it. And he's apologized for it. But what happened is, after that that video surfaced, um, his, his career essentially came to a halt. The Country Music Association removed his digital content from their platforms. Um, the Academy of Country Music Awards said he's not going to be eligible for this award. His record label dropped him. And what happened is, interestingly enough, the sales of his records went through the roof. And it's just it's been one of these amazing phenomena as people decided they're they're voting with their pocketbooks and they're kind of responding to the efforts of the cancel culture. Well, well, here's the deal. Um, The 2021 Billboard Music Awards, which he is not eligible for since he, he was banned from attending or performing the Sunday show. Apparently, he had won three awards from six nominations because apparently the way they calculate these awards it's a um it's a factor they they look at um performance on the billboard and charts they're not voted on but depending on how well you do that decides who the winners are so even though he was said he's not eligible he actually and he wasn't invited to participate because the fans decided that they weren't going to cancel him. He ended up winning three out of the six awards. Now, he's not going to get them. That's my understanding because, again, he's not eligible. But based on the numbers, he won three out of six. The cancel culture gets left in the dust on this particular issue. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Is this a voting issue? I mentioned the story briefly um, on Friday's program, and I think it's worth at least one segment of discussion. Here's the deal. Liz Cheney is the Republican representative, the congresswoman from Wyoming. Wyoming only has one congressional delegate. Everybody knows the Liz Cheney story by now. She's, uh, of course, the the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. Um, In addition, she was one of the vocal advocates for the impeachment of former President Trump, and she's been a harsh critic of President Trump's. She was the number three person in GOP leadership, and she's been bounced from her, her role, and that's got a lot of attention. She is also getting a number of people who are thinking about or announced to run against her in a Republican primary next year. Um, and again, it's really like the pro-Trump forces. They're going to come forward and see if they can take her out. Don't know if that's going to succeed or not. But probably the leading candidate who was, at least up until this news I'm going to tell you about broke, who was emerging to challenge Liz Cheney was a, a guy named Anthony Borchert who has been a state senator for a couple of years. I think he was a, a car dealer before that. He's 55 years old. But he's he's a very, very pro-Trump conservative. And conservative forces were kind of lining up behind him. So here's what happens um, last week. He, he goes public with this story. Apparently, he finds out that there's some, you know, opposition research that is out there that's going to surface that reveals something about his past. So in an effort to get ahead of it, he comes out and he tells a story. Now, he's 55 now. He grew up in Florida. His story is that when he was 18, he got a four, he was dating a 14-year-old girl. He was 18. He got her pregnant. And 
at the age of rather than than getting an abortion um, at the age of 19. So he's 19. She's 15. They got married. So he says, yeah, I, I you know, we were we, we were, you know, boyfriend and, and girlfriend. She got pregnant, got married. The age of consent. And it, it's it, it does. It does not appear, at least the laws in Florida back then, and this is, again, you're talking about 35 years ago, a um, little bit unclear. He was never charged with statutory rape or anything like that, although I think most of us would, would argue that, you know, an 18-year-old having relations with a 14-year-old is not a good thing. But anyhow, you know, it happens. She gets pregnant. They get married. He's 19. She's 15. Three years later, they get divorced. So they have the baby. They get divorced. He ends up, they get divorced. And then two years later, when she's 20, she ends up killing herself. Apparently, she had sort of a troubled kind of background. Her dad had committed suicide. She commits suicide at the age of 20. He then um, raises raises their kid. So now he's, he's married to someone else. He's got four kids. Uh, but this story is out there. So he knows it's going to be broken by opposition and stuff. So he comes out, tries to get ahead of the story and says, okay, here's the deal. Yeah, when I was 18, I got a 14-year-old girl pregnant. We got married, had the baby, and, you know, we lived together. We got divorced three years later, and then two years later she killed herself. So that's the story. I mean, not not a pleasant thing on so many levels, but his position is, look, we were under pressure to – have an abortion, things like that. We, we chose not to do it. He said that this is, it is what it is. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, this happened, he's 55 years old. So, I mean, this happened 35 years ago. But it, it still ended up happening, and this story was going to break, and it was going to be used against him. Here, here is my question to you. Is there a statute of limitations on bad behavior? Is this something that should be disqualifying? Is the fact that 35 years ago he ended up getting involved in this particular situation and showing what I think many of us would agree is is bad judgment, although I I do know that there's a, a number of people out there who um, maybe, maybe high school sweethearts who, you know, when, when they were 17 or 18, you know, were, when they were seniors in high school, they were dating freshmen in high school and, and a lot of people ended up getting married after that and have lived long, productive, you know, lives together. But at the same time, like I say, I think most of us would agree that an 18 year old being intimate with a 14 year old is not an ideal situation. And in many situations, it is in fact a violation of the law. But he did it. It's 35 years ago. He's now come clean about this. All right. Is this a voting issue? Is this a reason not to vote for him? Does this kill, in your mind, his political career moving forward? Or is there a statute of limitations for bad behavior? Or is this even bad behavior? Is this one of those deals where, hey, this kind of stuff happens. He did the right thing. They had the kid. They got married. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will this kill him with voters, either primary uh, voters in the Republican primary or voters in the general election? Is something like this disqualifying? My answer would be, I don't think so. But I'm willing to discuss. 855-616-1620. What do you think? That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, Anthony B. didn't just exercise bad judgment by today's standards. He raped a 14-year-old. You can say rape on the radio. It's okay. Well, I... 
I, I, I don't understand quite what that means because, I mean, here, here's the, Here's the standard. I'm looking at the Wyoming paper. Um, the two were legally able to get married at the time because Florida law stated that people could marry at any age without a ju- with a judge's approval if a pregnancy was involved and a parent consented. Details surrounding the age of consent laws in Florida in the early 1980s are unclear. The state's current age of consent is 18. The Star Tribune, that's the Wyoming paper, reached out to the Florida State Bar, the Florida State University College of Law, the Florida Attorney General, public defenders, current and former prosecutors, and multiple law firms, and none of them were able to offer substantial answers on Florida's laws concerning age of consent at that time. So, by, by that standard, no, I'm not going to say that he raped her. Do I think it's, do I think, as I said earlier, you know, an, an 18-year-old being involved with a 14-year-old is a very, very bad idea? I do. And it's entirely possible that in many, many states that would constitute statutory rape. Whether that was the case in Florida in the early 18, 1980s, nobody knows. But as we've talked about before, I, I do know that there's situations where, again, there, there's many situations where maybe you've got the high school senior who's dating the high school freshman and, you know, one thing leads to another. Is it, is, is it something advisable? Is it desirable? No. But all right, given the way the guy handled it, all right, rather than aborting the child, we got married. Um, no criminal action was ever taken. It wasn't prosecuted, which tells me that, you know, probably that there wasn't a desire to proceed on this. They ended up getting married. They had the baby. Should this, in fact, be disqualifying? And would it only be disqualifying if it's a Republican politician or if this was a Democrat politician? Would that also be disqualifying? Let's talk to Jim in mm-hmm. West Dallas. Jim, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Jim. Um, yeah, I, I heard this. And I'm I'm getting to the point now where I start to hear this stuff and I automatically think negatively on who's the one digging it up, you know. Mm-hmm. He's a politician, and at least he's confessing what he knows. I don't know who's digging it up and what do they want it for. Well, they they want it. You know, I mean, wrong, wrong is wrong. Wrong is wrong. But at the same time. Well, it is 35 years ago. Right. Yeah. Thanks. No, I mean, I I mean, I'll tell you what's going on. It's no surprise that this was it was dug up by opponents of his who are are trying to derail his his candidacy. Nobody makes any secret about that. And they're saying, okay, we're going to bring this up now. I guess that the question becomes, is there a statute of limitations on bad behavior? And I think most of us would agree by any objective standard. This is bad. This is bad behavior. Um, But you look at how he handled it. It's 35 years ago, and I guess the question becomes if we're going to apply these standards. So you've got the high school senior who's dating the high school freshman, and, you know, something happens between the two of them. All right, does that mean moving forward that that 18-year-old for the rest of, let's say it's the situation, it's a boy for the rest of the guy's, the boy's life, well, you, you can't run for office, you can't do any of this stuff because of this. And what about the situations where the marriage works? I mean, what about the 18-year-old, the 19- and 15-year-old who married, and, um, the, you know, the high school sweethearts? And, I again, I, I don't want anybody to listen to this and think I'm in, endorsing the, the, you know, an 18-year-old having sex with a 14-year-old. That, that's a very, very bad idea. It's against the law in Wisconsin. It should be against the law in Wisconsin. But all right, it happened 35 years ago. Should it be disqualifying? Jeff, I was in high school in the 70s. Lots of seniors went out with freshman girls. Senior boys went out with freshman girls. When you have love for each other and it's consensual, I don't have a problem with it. Um, keep in mind, we're in a society where a 60-year-old marrying a 19-year-old is allowed. I 
see, I I think it's bad behavior and it needs to be addressed, but it is, of course, 35 years ago. Jeff, no matter whether it's Republican or Democrat, it's a felony crime if it had been charged. And yes, I think it's disqualifying. Well, I don't know that it's a felony. It, it, it might have been in Wisconsin. Again, in, in Florida, no lawyer right now, the, the newspaper contacted anybody, and nobody knows whether it was a felony or not. Um, so I think it's difficult to just kind of say that. Um, Jeff, this is the problem with the media. It's a non-issue. This has happened many times um, in the 1800s, in the early 1900s. This was commonly accepted. Well, of course, we're, we're not there, though. Um, they did what they thought was right in their minds at the time. We need to give them credit. And they did it legally under the law at the time. I do not believe that this should be an issue. Jeff, I don't think he's a viable candidate. Even if he um, has since been a fine, upstanding citizen, 30-plus years ago, it was still a case of statutory rape. Um, there are other people just as qualified without those skeletons in their closet. Well, again, I, I mean, I, I, I correct them only to say, I don't know if it was statutory rape or not. Nobody can say what the age of consent was in Florida at the time. That's So maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We don't know that. We do know that nobody was prosecuted and ended up getting married. So this then becomes the question. Is is the fact that he, he did it, regardless of whether it's a crime or not, he was never charged with it. So the fact that this happened, is that going to be disqualifying and for the rest of your life? And that that's just it. I mean, think about... Think about stuff that you may have done when you were were a kid that, OK, in this case, it, it let, let's say, you know, you've got the in Wisconsin, you've got the 16 year old that has sex with the 15 year old girlfriend. Is that the type of thing that's going to be disqualifying, you know, moving forward? Is this can we say that you have if you make a mistake and this is it's a bad mistake, not downplaying it, but you make this mistake. So this means now for the rest of your life, how dare you think that you should be able to, you know, run for office? Jeff, it's not good optics, but as long as there was no criminal activity, we need to stop scraping people's past for reason to ruin their career. It reduces the amount and quality of potential candidates knowing their past will be nitpicked and ripped apart. Um, Jeff, the girlfriend issue won't kill his political future. It's his embracement of Trump um, that will kill his political future. Well, that's a different story. You know, that that that's a different story. Jeff, I'm a conservative. However, in saying that, people can change as they get older. Um, this would be for candidates on the other side as well. I'm nearly 50, and I'm not the same person I was when I was 18. People make mistakes and bad decisions. That doesn't mean your entire life is marred in failure and rendered useless. That, by the way, is one of the things that's behind the whole notion. And I, I find this so interesting, especially from the people from the left who are so quick to condemn this guy and say, okay, we got to cancel him. Because I, I read so often the fact that you, you can't hold somebody's past against them. And, and just because you held up a liquor store when you were 18 years old, that doesn't mean when you're 40 years old that you should be prevented from doing this or that or the other thing. Isn't that argument? Isn't that what we hear all the time? That you have, you know, redemption and change. And, and I guess I come back to this notion, and I've been pretty consistent about saying this over the years. First of all, one of our texters is absolutely correct. I think, you know, politics, I get that it's a blood sport now, but if we're going to start looking at people's past, and this is a pretty bad mistake, but he, he wasn't charged criminally. I mean, it's an 18-year-old that had relations with a 14-year-old, and then they got married. Okay, that's 
that type of stuff happens. It shouldn't happen, but in the real world, it does. If we're now getting to the point where we say, okay, those are the things. Once you make that decision to do that at 18, when you're you're really not thinking clearly, and then you try to do everything you can to make it right afterwards. But it doesn't matter what you do. You know, you're you're branded for life. This is it. You have disqualified yourself from any position of responsibility. Well, it's going to start being tougher and tougher and tougher to find people who are willing to run for office out there. I, I just kind of say that. So I guess I look at this and I'm thinking. I hear the story. If it was me. Would I not vote for him simply because this was in his past from 35 years ago? And my answer is no. That that would not be a voting issue for me. Now, there's all sorts of other stuff that I would look at. Now, again, if this if if it turns out that okay, it's it's not this issue, but if it turns out the guy's been cheating on his taxes, or if it turns out that in the last couple of years the guy has a criminal record for doing for committing fraud or something like that, well, that's a whole different sort of story. But in this case, something that he did when he was 18 years old, I, I'm not going to hold that against him. Now, I'm not saying if I lived in Wyoming, I'd necessarily vote for him over Liz Cheney. Matter of fact, I'm kind of a fan of Liz Cheney. But I am saying in this particular situation, this is the type of thing that, to me, non-issue. Does that endorse the behavior? Of course not. But for everybody who wants to cancel the guy, you know, be, be careful because, you know, sometimes people might be poking around in your past and there might be one of those skeletons or two that come out of your particular closet that don't reflect the type of person you are 30 or 40 years later. So, you know, be careful because if you're saying, oh, this guy did this thing at 18, he shouldn't be able to run for office. Well, all right. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And maybe when it comes to personal life, you know, maybe everybody lives in a glass house to an extent. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Hey, when we come back in the next hour of the program, we're going to be talking about getting refunds for concert tickets. We're going to be talking about a prominent former NBA player who is alleging racism, no lifeguards on Milwaukee County beaches, and a lot more. Stick around. The Wagner Show continues in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Melissa, it's. I think that this story that that Greg had on, on Aaron Rodgers not appearing for the you know organized team activities, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. regardless of how you feel about the Aaron Rodgers thing, it's it, it's one of these examples where there, there's just this other world that that some athletes live in that that real people can't relate to. Aaron Rodgers and today was their their OTAs, you know, their their workout things. Aaron Rodgers is one of a handful of players that have what called workout bonuses in his contract. Yes. Mm-hmm. Workout bonuses in his contract, which means, you know, and, and by the way, historically, apparently Aaron Rodgers has always showed up to do this. But there's a couple phases. I'm looking at the story here. Phase one was um, virtual for four weeks. Um, phase two, which was held in person last week, and then phase three is a, includes a total of 10 days, workouts spread over four weeks, and it began Monday, okay? If, for Aaron Rodgers, if he shows up and does this, he gets $500,000. Dollars. Can I have a workout bonus? Well, that I, see, and, and that, <laughs> that would be very motivating right, that, to right, me. Right, and, and <laughs> I guess, I mean, I, I understand when you talk about 
without taking any position on who's right or who's wrong and the Packers or Aaron Rodgers thing or where it stands, the guy the guy stands to have somebody write him a check for five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> for like participating mm-hmm. in this virtual thing and, and showing up a couple times. I mean, I just I, I can't imagine what it would be, what you, where we'd have to be, I guess, at your point in your life where you just kind of say, oh, it's only half a million dollars. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna show up. I mean, it's half a million dollars. Yeah, I know. That's a good question. Well, maybe, you know, he's just staying in Hawaii for a while. Well, and, and <laughs> at which point, I mean, I say go with God, that, that's fine, but I'm sitting there thinking it's just this, this whole other world. I mean, people think of how long most ordinary people would have to work. That's true. To get, to get half a million dollars. Yeah. And all Aaron Rodgers had to do, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not knocking Aaron Rodgers for this because it's an optional thing, but all he would have had to do was like, like show up for a couple workouts and they're going to give him a check for half a million dollars. And he's at this point in time where he can blow off half a million dollars. I, it's just, I guess it's another, he doesn't need it. Well, he doesn't need, yeah. well, he doesn't need it now. You just, yeah, and he probably won't need it unless he's really, really bad with money. And I doubt he is, but you do, you do wonder with some of these these athletes, and you always hear these stories about some of these professional athletes who just made a boatload of money over their careers. And I don't think it's going to happen to Aaron Rodgers, but they made a boatload of money over their careers. And then five years or 10 years after they've retired, they've got nothing. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never understood that. It's like, how can you have? Yeah. I mean, I guess, yes, I understand you, you've spent it all. <laughs> you know, I get it. But, but how, how can you spend all that kind of money? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you think about people who win the lottery. There are stories that they win the lottery and then, you know, two, three years later, they're broke. <laughs> it's bad management. Well, yeah. I mean, and again, it's, here's a text, Jeff. When you hear yourself say this, and again, it's, he, he, all he had to do was show up and they were going to give him a check for $500,000. So I guess the other thing that I would always be interested in is what else did he have to do? And see, that was, that's yeah. the other thing. What, what did you have to do that's worth $500,000? It could you know? be a personal protest. Well, yeah, but it cost you 500 know, grand. That's, that's it. There's a, there's a story that, um, it, it's actually, it's a Packer story and somebody's, I've, I'm going to probably get the, the, the people wrong in this, but I, I think it, it was Paul Horning and it was Fuzzy Thurston, maybe it was Max McGee. I, I I could be wrong about this, but it goes back to the Lombardi years. And they put in this this these guys would like sneak out during like pre like the preseason camp. They, they'd sneak out and they'd you know they, they'd go get in some sort of trouble because mm-hmm. they had curfews. And so Lombardi had the, these fines. And this is back in the day. And I think the athletes didn't make anywhere near as much money as they did. But whatever the number was, the fine was like, okay, look here here's the deal. If if you sneak out, if you break curfew and you go out, you know the fine is going to be five hundred bucks. And then which was big money at the time. And then the the, the thing like Lombardi was said was said was look and by the way if you find something that's worth that five hundred dollars let me know so I can go along with it I mean it's (laughs) it it is it's like what could Aaron Rodgers be doing that's worth five hundred thousand dollars and you're right he's probably trying to make a point yes Jeff Aaron is trying to punish the Packers front office Okay. <laughs> While punishing himself. <laughs> right. But you're punishing the Packers front office by saying, okay, I'm not showing up. And, and here you save $500,000. Again, I'm just, I, I just, I, he has a right to do it. It's optional. I'm just saying, is, doesn't it say, it does say something on, on how out of whack 
our society mm-hmm. is. When you start talking about, oh, it, I, I'm just I'm blowing it off because it's only five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, how out of touch some people in certain sectors of the world really are. I mean, if that doesn't mean anything to him, then you know he doesn't need it, and he's just like, right. I'm yeah. going to protest or whatever he's doing. I'm going right. to go do something else. I, and I guess it's 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 just kind of all relative. And you know, I was mm-hmm. when I was watching the thing on on Michael Jordan, and you know, he'd go to Las Vegas and he dropped just just enormous amounts of money. But the truth is, you know, to to Michael Jordan, what might be $10 to me, you know, for Michael Jordan, it's like $100,000. It just doesn't mean anything. I'm just saying it's just um, kind of interesting to, it's just kind of interesting that uh, you'd be in that situation. What what can you say? And, and I guess if anybody's going to say $500,000 to show up, I'm there. And my guess <laughs> we'll is- We'll be there together. We will be there together. Absolutely. Okay, when we come back, dress codes at restaurants, is it time to get rid of them? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Sometimes we get these texts. I just don't know what to do with them. Okay, five hundred thousand dollars. I'm I'm showing up. Jeff, don't act like you're in the same financial class as the vast majority of your listeners. I'm sure you make a lot more than most. Don't know about that one way or the other. But my question was, sigh. And your point is, you know, just got heavy sigh. And your point is, I do not understand, Gru, why some people are just so angry. I just don't. I do not get it. I mean, it's like lighten up. All right, here's the deal. A number of restaurants around have, have dress codes. And those dress codes, though, have changed over the years. It used to be, you can remember, I, I can remember a time where, where dining, dining out was a, was a, in some cases, it was kind of a semi-formal sort of thing. There were restaurants that required gentlemen to wear coats and ties and things of the like. Now that's changed as we've gotten a lot more casual, but there are still some dress codes, some restaurants that, that have that have dress codes. And I think in some cases that costs restaurants um, businesses. There, there are there are a couple of places, for example, that we go from time to time where occasionally we will make the decision that we're not going to go to the place because you got to dress up more than you want. I'm kind of like I'm in blue jeans and I'm in a in a polo shirt and I'm wearing tennis shoes. I don't feel like putting on a coat and tie. So let's not go to place X because, you know, you got to wear a coat and tie. Maybe you don't need to have a tie, but I just don't feel like getting out of the blue jeans. I want to be comfortable. And so that's that's fine. But nevertheless, the restaurant has the particular dress code that's there. There's a story involving Dominic Wil- Wilkins. Dominic Wilkins is a former, he's a Hall of Fame NBA player, uh, played most of his career for the Atlanta Hawks. Now he does broadcasting in Atlanta. So the story that's out there, last week he goes to a high-end restaurant in, in an Atlanta suburb called, called Buckhead. And the restaurant doesn't know he is Dominic Wilkins. So he shows up. The restaurant has what they call a business casual dress code that includes you can wear jeans, you can wear sneakers, but you're not allowed to wear baseball caps and you're not allowed to wear athletic clothing, including sweatpants and tops. So he shows up, Wilkins shows up, and he's wearing what he describes as designer casual pants and a shirt. 
although it's kind of unclear. The designer casual pants he's wearing, I, I think, are are like three hundred fifty dollars sweatpants. Is the sense the sense I get? So anyhow, you know, he shows up. They 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 don't seat him, and then he goes on to he goes um, on social media and he says the reason they didn't seat me at this particular place he believes it's because he he's black and and that sets off the whole thing and then the the restaurant you know apologizes look we're, we apologize if that's how he interpreted this you know we we just. We have this dress code, and this is what we do. But we apologize if the experience wasn't wasn't good enough. And I guess there's a question about whether or not they, they properly enforced the dress code. And you know, again, this is one of the problems that you have with dress codes: that if you have them and you enforce them, and you you aren't as rigid as you possibly should be in enforcing them, and you let somebody in, and you don't let somebody else in, well, then you leave yourself open to all these different complaints. And so I I don't exactly know what the guy was wearing and whether or not it technically fell within the parameters of the dress code or not, but you've got this issue that's out there. To me, the more interesting larger question is, are dress codes at restaurants – are they still viable in 2021? Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, there are a handful of places that I go on occasion that, that they do, in fact, have dress codes. And the dress codes vary. In some cases, it's no blue jeans, and I love to wear blue jeans. In other cases, it's no tennis shoes, no sneakers. I, I love to wear, I'm wearing blue jeans and sneakers right now. In other cases, it's gentlemen have to wear a, a, a tie, a, a coat and tie. Sometimes it's just a coat. But there, there's these places that have these different rules. And then, then of course, you've got the whole different set of rules for, for ladies. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess I look at this, and putting aside the question of whether this restaurant you know, was selectively enforcing its rules or not, that's, that's a whole different question. The broader point is, I think, first of all, restaurants have the right to have dress codes. And secondly, there are occasions where I like getting dressed up to go out to have the meal. And that is an attraction for me. Now, like I just said, there are other times where, gee, you know, maybe we'd go to, you know, Gru's restaurant, but because I don't feel like wearing a suit or I don't feel like wearing a coat and tie, okay, we're, we're not going to go there tonight. I just want to go to some place where I can be in blue jeans and my tennis shoes. But at the same time, I there are restaurants that have dress codes. There are places that have the dress codes, and I applaud them because every once in a while, I think it's nice to get dressed to go out. 855-616-1620, not always, but if the restaurant wants to do that, I think they have every right to do it, and I'm glad there are restaurants out there that do, are able to make a go of it by implementing those dress code policies. 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Janice in Brookfield. Hi, Janice. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Okay, well, I think we're kind of beyond this, but I have an interesting story. Um, uh, we go to Williamsburg every other year when mm-hmm. we go to the Outer Bank. Right. And we take our family with us, and our family is like 22 people. And so we had a reservation at the lodge, which we had eaten at before, 
And um, so we all walked in, and, you know, the guys are casually dressed because you're walking around Williamsburg. And the lady looked at us, and she said, oh, well, do you know how expensive this restaurant is? My husband's a dentist, and we're not rich, but we can afford it, and, you know, we know we can afford it. Sure. So anyway, so, you know, she asked us this, and we're like, well, yeah, you know, we know. We've eaten here before. Well, anyway, one of my daughters said, I think we should leave. They're just not treating us right. And we said, no, this is a nice, this is nice buffet. We're going to stay. Right. So anyway, so they made the guys go and put sport clothes on. They yeah. had a closet full. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they came back. And so anyway, so when we got home, my husband sent a letter, not expecting to get anything. He just sent a letter telling them, you know, how we felt and how we were being treated. And, you know, and the one daughter was, you know, through the whole meal, she kept saying, I don't think we should stay. And we're like, just calm down, you know. Right. Well, anyway, and so after that, whenever we made a reservation there, it's now a Marriott Autograph Hotel, um, I always ask, okay, is there a dress code? Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, we didn't, we didn't, I mean, it was a horrible way to treat people, really. Right. Well, that, Janice, I mean, thanks. And again, I I think they handled it poorly. Do you know how expensive the restaurant is and things like that? But at the same time, I guess I do think, I mean, first of all, I think there there are times where people want to go out and they they want to dress up. And again, and and to me, it's just, it depends on the type of restaurant. It depends on the mood you're in. I I can go either way. And, but I guess I I think now the problem with dress codes, like I was saying a minute ago, is you have to, you have to enforce them fairly. The problem that that happens here is, you know, Dominic Wilkins says, well, the, I, I, I think I was dressed. They they said I was in athletic clothes and yeah, these are really, these are pants and they're, they're, it sounds to me like he's wearing $400 sweatpants and stuff. And, and, and again, it sounds the problem is how you communicate that. But at the same time, I don't. If, if the restaurant wants to have a dress code to say, "Hey, you got a gentleman, you got to wear a coat and tie," I don't have a problem with that, Jeff. I believe that if a restaurant wants to impose a dress code, they're welcome to. It's their business. This also adds to the argument of quality over quantity. Maybe they feel it's better to have ten clients paying more for a high quality meal and ambiance than turning over to thirty clients just looking for a meal. You you get what you. Pay for Jeff. I'm going to Nashville this weekend, and some of the restaurants we made dinner reservations at, including a fancy steakhouse, all listed the same dress code you described, if not stricter. The South is all like this. They have the right, and I prefer to go to a place such as this. I enjoy the feeling of being dressed up to spend some money. I I agree with you. And and to me, again, it just it varies. It depends on what my mood is. But that's one of the questions. If somebody invites me to go to a particular place, I, I always kind of try to get a feeling of oh you're inviting me to your club that that's great what 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 is the dress code for that and then you you try to end up complying and I'm I'm actually glad from time to time like I say it's not for me on an everyday thing I'm kind of a casual guy but if you tell me hey you're going out to a special meal or this is a place and this is this is the ambiance they're trying to do I support the restaurant and that's great I will I'll play along and if I don't feel like playing along I won't go when we come back we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.